Hello and welcome to The Weekend Intelligence. You're listening to a free episode. To listen every week, you'll need to be a subscriber. For a free trial of Economist Podcasts Plus, click on the link in the show notes or just search Economist Podcasts in your very favorite search engine. The Economist. Chances are you know at least one person who has a story of IVF. Friends or family whose children wouldn't exist if it weren't for this transformative technology. I know I do. And it feels miraculous, right? Only 45 years ago, every human being in history had been conceived inside a woman's body. And yet today, There are more than 10 million people on the planet who are conceived in a Petri dish instead. For many parents, for people in same-sex relationships or in no relationship at all, when biology has placed them at a dead end, in vitro fertilization has paved a path to parenthood. For many women, whose personal circumstances, whatever they may be, mean they're trying for children later in life, IVF can help stretch time a bit, expanding the window of what's possible. In short, it's made dreams come true. Those are really important stories to tell, but they tell one story. And that's because, behind the miracles, the more than 10 million and counting, the IVF baby born every 45 seconds, there is another reality. A reality that rarely gets spoken about. I've done five years of, uh, of IVF treatments and eight cycles. You hear all of these examples of miracles happening all the time. You don't hear the stories about the women for whom it doesn't work. Most Petri dish conceptions end not in magic, but in heartbreak. Most embryos transferred back into the womb do not implant, or if they do, fail in some other way. For every couple or single mother brought the joy of parenthood after a cycle of IVF, three to four more end up instead with an unusually lonely form of grief. The experience of losing something that could have been, but never was. I always think of IVF as being a grieving process over nothing, a grieving process over no thing. I'm Ore Ogumbi, and this is The Weekend Intelligence, a new podcast from The Economist. It's going to be our home for storytelling, a chance to meet Economist reporters from around the globe and hear the stories they're passionate about. Recently, our environment editor, Catherine Braik, and our social affairs editor, Sasha Nauter, spent several months reporting on fertility treatment for The Economist Technology Quarterly, published earlier this year. Speaking to doctors, scientists, investors, innovators, and patients, Kat and Sasha reported on just how far reproductive science has come since the world's first test tube baby in 1978. 
They assess new advances that promise to open up the field of fertility medicine and create even more lab-assisted pregnancies. And they explored the limitations and why embarking on IVF is still a roll of the dice rather than a personalised pathway to conception. They also wrote about what it was like to be on the inside. In this episode, Kat and Sasha want to tell a different story about fertility treatment. There's a large number of couples and women who don't make the narrative, who don't get featured because they don't talk about themselves, because it's really hard to talk about. A story about the pain, the hope, and the despair that is paid for a life to be created. And a personal story about two women over five years whose lives followed parallel tracks in their quest for a baby. I certainly would have found it helpful to hear from people who were actually in the middle of it. I remember, Kat, when you and I first discovered that we were both going through this in that very mysterious way that one does. You were working in Amsterdam at the time, and I think I sent a message saying, I'm really sorry if this is super indiscreet, but I think if I've understood correctly, you might be possibly doing IVF, in which case I'd like to say that I am too. I think we both hadn't told many people and were keen to keep it that way. Like, we're keen to keep it quite, quite private. And as I think now over the years, I have just, I mean, we're doing a podcast now, so we've, clear, <laughs> we've clearly opened up just a tad. My name is Sasha Nauter. My day job is the social affairs editor for The Economist based in Washington, D.C. at the moment. My name is Catherine Maik. I am the environment editor for The Economist based out of London. We've had the idea for a long time that we wanted to write about the subject, both because we think journalistically there's sort of a gap that hasn't been written about, but also because we've had some personal experience with the subject. So I'm now 46, recently 46, and I started when I was 40, so six years ago. That's not when my first treatment was. I think I've done about five years of treatments, but it's when I started sort of investigating what this would all mean, how I would do it, etc. It takes a while. Well, in my case, maybe I'm an overthinker. It takes a while to sort of get your head around what's involved. Some people just dive right in there. I'd just turned 34 when I started IVF, around the same age that my mother had me, so I wasn't really expecting any any issues there. My partner and I were trying to conceive for about a year before we did our first treatment. I think it was the same for us, actually. It's a scary place to start because most people have already been trying for six months, a year, a couple of years, and so you're already full of disappointment and fear and will this ever work for me. I was aware 
just from conversations with friends, that the minute you put your foot on what was described to me as the sort of rolling carpet of IVF, it's such a routine process that it's just like, go, here's your drugs, here's the injections, and there's just like this flood of information. I found like that there was this weird disconnect between me being quite a cautious person wanting to understand everything and figure it all out and be able to visualize it and picture it before I did it and then the clinics being like right and this is away you are here you go here's your pack of drugs here's your needles off you go I was kind of the opposite. I was quite impatient. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw it as like a logistical operation. That sounds very cold now, but I remember sitting in the, um, <laughs> I can laugh at it now, but sitting in the hospital waiting room after an appointment in Amsterdam in floods of tears, like this very nice elderly gentleman <laughs> came to bring me a glass of water because he probably thought something terrible had happened. And I was in floods of tears because they told me I'd have to wait I think it was two or three months before I could actually start treatment. I was like, I want to go now. I'm here. I'm ready. Let's get this baby. In IVF, you're doing, let's say, two to three things at the same time, depending on, on how you count it. You're bringing the eggs and sperm together in time and space. And so you need those two things to meet fundamentally. IVF overcomes that by literally putting them in the dish at the same time. And then the third thing that you're doing is that you're stimulating, or the woman is stimulating her ovaries to produce more than one oocyte, which is an egg cell, every month. So normally we produce one egg every month. By taking hormones daily, in fact, sometimes and often twice daily, hormone injections for a couple weeks during your regular menstrual cycle, um, you stimulate the ovaries to produce more eggs. And in fact, you're stimulating both ovaries. So at some point you start to fail them. Um, and then do ultrasounds, internal ultrasounds that are quite painful to have a look at that. And they monitor their growth. And at some point they decide that a maximum number is ready, <laughs> ripe for collecting. That means we need you to take your trigger shot and here it is actually fairly precise, within a certain number of hours forces ovulation. Which, for me anyway, I don't know about you, Kat, but for me it was always in the middle of the night. They time your egg retrieval specifically to the trigger shot. This is one of those things where you're sort of in control freak mode, you know, practically with a timer. <laughs> yeah. For me, it was always midnight, 1am. Mine were always like 3.30 or something in the bloody... <laughs> really useless and to your control point I'd set like five alarms and you then wait 36 hours from that moment you go to your clinic in Holland it's called harvesting it's also sometimes called the punction which I also think is weird by the way in the UK it's called egg collection you go in you get put under um, a doctor inserts a needle they essentially take a a very long needle and yeah, puncture your... Through the cervix and straight through to the ovary, which is on the other side, basically. It's pretty rough, if I can be honest. I remember the first time you told me that in Holland it wasn't under sedation and 
I genuinely didn't believe you. I could not believe that that was done without drugs. It seems extraordinary to me. Yeah, they give you like a little local anaesthetic that's supposed to sort of numb something, but it doesn't really, is the honest answer. And then after that, the eggs are put in a dish with the sperm. Um, and then the embryologists do their thing. They uh, watch them, they see how many fertilize, they see how many develop and how and how well. And after a few days, they call you up and they say, we've got this number. Then you go in and essentially they, they put the embryo in your womb. And then comes the second wait, the two-week wait. It's very weird. It's massively anticlimactic. Um, they send you home with a pregnancy test and a phone number, and that's it. It's two weeks where you can do absolutely nothing, and yet you try to control absolutely everything. Everything you eat, everything you do, do you travel, do you exercise? Hilariously, the thing that they did say just as we were leaving was you're going to feel some cramps because of the embryo transfer. Um, try not to have a hot bath immediately. The first thing I did was I got home and I made myself a hot water bottle and put it on my tummy. And about 30 minutes later, my partner turned to me and was like, you're not meant to be doing that. And literally, I spent two weeks going, I boiled the baby you know, convinced that it was my fault, that I had done something wrong and waiting two weeks if that, to find out if that was going to be terminal, effectively. And it's devastating. I did the same thing with a hot water bottle because it's comforting, right? But I did it during the stimulation phase when you're injecting yourself with hormones because your ovaries get quite swollen at some point in that process. So I put a hottie on my tummy as well and then rapidly afterwards read about you know extreme heat and thought oh god I've boiled our eggs um, and now we can't have babies <laughs> so it's not just you. You essentially leave kind of pregnant. I mean you are pregnant. There is an embryo that met a particular threshold inside your womb Unlike a sort of natural menstrual cycle where you might have tried to get pregnant just at home, you, you do actually know that there's something there. So you do actually know that there's an embryo or even two inside you. And so you leave carrying something, right? One thing I, to this day, found very awkward and weird and confusing was how Certainly in the Netherlands, they show you on a screen a video of the embryo in the lab next door, right? Right before they bring it in and say, would you like to take a picture for your baby album? We stopped taking those pictures quite quickly for obvious reasons. If I think back now, I think I was hugely hopeful and massively naive <laughs> about, you know, the chances of success. I knew it wasn't a foolproof, everyone succeeds on the first go treatment. But I think if in all honesty, I try to 
think back of my 34-year-old self back then, I did think, you know, this is the way we are going to have not just a child but children, right? I thought it was going to work, you know. I knew... I knew that because the doctors say them and mention the stats, I, I knew that there are odds that it'll work and odds that it won't and that, you know, there's no guarantee and all of that kind of stuff. And actually, there's a lot of these clinics, certainly in the UK, well, the private clinics will offer um, sort of packages of three. And now I know why it's a package of three. It's because most couples or most women have to do it three times. That's kind of an average but at the time, I remember thinking, I won't need three. I was harvesting quite a lot of eggs, which means you make quite a lot of embryos, which means you have, you know, more rolls at the dice, so to speak. So I thought, that, that sounds pretty good. I think I should, be, I should be fine with one cycle. You know, I tend to do well on averages in general in life. So I was very surprised to not do well on the averages there. Everything that related to me in particular was very good for my age. Bear in mind that when I started this, I was 40. So in my mind, yeah, it was a bit late in the game, but it wasn't, you know, I wasn't geriatric. I didn't think that my age was particularly old, frankly. And those words, for my age, man, they caused so much pain because you hear them over and over and over again. And eventually you're like, okay, but basically what you're saying in every conversation is you are old <laughs> and it gets quite painful. But the problem was that the flip side of that is I kept being told you're doing very well for your age, but you're doing very well is what you hear. I do think the wishful thinking, which is ultimately, you know, the, the confidence of being on the right side of averages <laughs> of stats, um, is not just felt by you as a patient. I think it's also felt by doctors. Like, I I was told all the time, all the lights are on green for you. You look great on paper. You know, you're, you're healthy, your husband's healthy, you have no history. It sounds like a really reassuring thing to hear, but actually it becomes very unreassuring. There's nothing wrong. We can't find anything wrong. And therefore this should work, right? I'm not sure anybody ever actually told me there is a real chance that this will never work for you. Fundamentally, the solution is always the same thing. It's do a cycle of IVF. So the stats kind of don't matter, in a sense. They tell you the stats, but it's sort of like, okay, here's the stats, but you might be at the upper end of the stats or you might be at the lower end of the stats, and we don't know. And, and really, the only way to find out if this is going to work is to try it. The issue is that IVF these days is basically applied to most forms of infertility. Do you, do you remember, Kat? Because weirdly, if I think of the most memorable moments, I actually can't quite remember my first, what they call, failed transfer. Hmm. Do you remember yours? Yeah. <sighs> um, yeah. I remember it really well. And in all, no, hold on. Take a sec. 
the first time it failed was actually one of those times where uh, I don't know how to describe this without it being completely gruesome, but yeah, it was just like a period, except it was very sudden, completely unexpected. And late at night, I remember, I remember my mother was visiting um, from France, and I remember it's one of those traumatic events where I can just picture the entire scene, and I don't think I'll ever forget it. I can picture the chair that I'm sitting in, I can picture the room, I can picture where I am, I can picture where my mother is and where my partner is, and and I can hear myself saying over and over again, there's so much blood. And we called the clinic, and the clinic said, it's okay, it might be okay. In any case, it was really, really late at night, and there was nothing that they could do. And I just... I remember being in a state of complete panic. In retrospect, I think probably I was having a minor panic attack. We went into the clinic the following day and the blood test came back negative. In your mind, you know that it hasn't worked and yet you still want every form of confirmation that it really is a negative. Because the other thing that we haven't mentioned is that even during those two weeks, you're not doing the injections anymore, but you're still taking yet another hormone, a progesterone, which um, helps to basically thicken the lining of your uterus and make it, you know, cozy and comfortable and ready to, to welcome an embryo. And the, the moment that you really decide that cycle has ended is the moment they say to you, you don't need to take the progesterone anymore. And the progesterone is a horrible drug to be on. It's really unpleasant. Um, and yet you hold on to continuing taking it because you know that stopping that horrible experience means a much more horrible thing has just happened. That was the end of my first cycle. It's very hard to explain to people what kind of loss this is, but it is a loss regardless of whether it gets to the stage of a, of a miscarriage or not. There's a word for a pregnancy that has failed, right? But there is no word for the embryo that was placed into your uterus and that failed to implant and never connected to your blood supply. And yet that experience is completely crushing. And with IVF, you do it over and over and over again. In my first year of treatment, that happened to me five times. My lowest point, I, I remember it exactly, um, was on a train from Holland to Belgium, um, where Tim and I were, we were traveling down there really full of hope, like quite literally filled of hope. We started in a new center, really good lab, really good doctor, really good everything. and. We were going down there for our first embryo placement. The night before, we'd had contact with the clinic. We had five embryos that were developing. Um, they had one more day to go. We were talking about the logistics of... This was in Ghent, in Belgium. You know, 
how much time we thought we'd be spending there in the coming months if this transfer didn't work and how many embryos we would hope to get and we sort of agreed well five you know we'll get at least three hopefully four you know that make it to day five and then I got this call it was quite a busy train quite a grotty train I had to walk away from our seats because it was too loud and there's this very apologetic Flemish lady saying um very sorry but there's there's no there's no point in coming you don't need to come in I was like, what do you mean you don't need to come in? I've got my bag, I'm on my way, we've, we've crossed the border, we're, we're coming. She's like, no, none of your embryos made it. It's one of those things where you need to hear it three times because I, by then we'd done several cycles of IVF and we'd been through failure, but this was not, this was not one of the scenarios I'd prepared for, encountered for. So she had to repeat it several times. She's like, no, this, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. None of them are viable. I think it was just the biggest drop from hope to total hopelessness, to tot- total rock bottom. I remember hanging up and I didn't know how to tell Tim I haven't often in this process felt like I've let him down, but that was a moment. That was a moment where I just, I just, yeah. It never, ever, ever gets any easier. You might become, I I certainly did become more cynical and jaded, but the hope is always there. And that's the problem. I remember you telling me about that. And I remember just thinking, I have no words of comfort. There's literally nothing that you can say. And I remember telling Will about it later, and we just sat in silence for half an hour. Utter, complete loss. If I could put a silver lining on all of this, I remember you texting me that. And that helped. An awful lot of this is about losing things that aren't, um, or that never were, but it is something. And that's really, really hard to explain, but you guys got it. This process is actually incredibly lonely. Um, the only person that you really share it with is your partner, if you're doing it with a partner. And even then, your partner is not going through exactly the same process as you. That's where actually Sasha and I, I think we're incredibly lucky because we shared that loneliness in a sense. 10 million people in the world exist now thanks to IVF, which is totally miraculous. We shouldn't play that down and for lots of Couples and single people, you know, this technology has transformed their lives. But I think too much emphasis on that number creates the impression that this is a technology that builds babies for anyone who wants a baby built. And that's just not true. I mean, those 10 million people cost 60 million IVF cycles. Now, they have become more successful over time. But still, you know, last over the last years, I think it's about... It's just over 3 million 
IVF cycles a year lead to about 750,000 kids born, right? So there isn't a single clinic in the world anywhere that has cracked it, right? There's nowhere that will guarantee you a baby because they can't. I think most of us are used to a degree of diagnostics that doesn't exist in infertility. I spoke to a doctor in New York for our reporting here who said that he used to spend an awful long time with new patients on diagnostics. And now, actually, he tried to, like, rush through the diagnostics to get straight into treatment because his point was exactly like yours. Look, there's a few things you want to rule out. You want to make sure, you know, people have the basic infrastructure in place. Um, but then you just want to go because eggs in particular are, are ageing. There's this question, which is sort of like, why does this thing that, you know, we describe as the black box of, of infertility, why does this thing exist? Why are we still just trying to use the same method over and over and over again or sort of tweak it slightly without understanding fundamentally the, the basic science? There's understanding the, the underlying causes in cases of unexplained infertility. And there's coming up with better solutions so that women can have children either younger and are supported in doing that or at older ages. And then there's a third thing, which is actually genuinely improving the effectiveness of IVF, which has massively improved in recent decades, but is not yet at the point where it actually reproduces fertility rates in the bedroom. And I think, in my opinion, that comes in from the interviews, that comes down to not actually knowing enough about what the natural in vivo process is. There's very little research that's actually being done into understanding that. The source who mentioned that was comparing it to sort of other fields of medicine where you kind of build from the bottom up. Cancer is probably the best example where you sort of look at what the normal, healthy functioning process of, say, cell division is, and then you look at why it goes wrong, and then you tailor and design treatments to your understanding of the molecular and the cellular mechanisms that go wrong. And IVF is not that. There's not this sort of bottom-up kind of understanding of fertility. We did five IUI cycles, followed by six IVF cycles. Seven IVF stimulation cycles, one IVF stimulation cycle that failed. 350 injections. Although we've had different journeys in terms of the clinics we've gone to and the issues we've run into, actually the basic stats are strikingly similar. Two frozen embryo transfers, approximately 260 injections. 82 eggs were harvested. 35 eggs. 51 eggs that were, were fertilised. 17 21 embryos. embryos were good enough for placement. 17 embryos were actually placed. Eight negative 14 pregnancy tests. negative pregnancy tests. Three One positive, positive pregnancy, pregnancy tests. tests. A lot of it is just trying and trying and trying again. About 20,000 pounds. Two miscarriages. I also always did feel a little bit like an inconvenience at that point for the clinic. You know, that's not what they want. £40,000, one ectopic pregnancy or pregnancy of unknown location. Five years in treatment. And four and a half years of treatment still ongoing. 
you try and you try again and you and you try again. And, and for, for my, my partner, partner, 15 visits, eight visits to the, to the sperm, sperm sample, room. sample room. I've never been in one of these rooms, thankfully. Um, the words used are always grubby, awkward, sticky, dog-eared magazines, well-thumbed magazines, <laughs> wipe clean chairs. The waiting room for the room is also awkward because... <laughs> Because <laughs> you have like three or four guys very busily looking at their shoes and very much not making eye contact as they go in and out of the out of the rooms. And yes, these inexplicable DVD players, which is like in 2023. Um, I'm just going to leave that out there. I had a doctor once explain this was after several failed cycles. And I think it was one of the most sort of salient things that I was told in a doctor's appointment, which was that people generally stop because of one of two reasons. They run out of capital, and that might be financial capital and it might be emotional capital. And you might, depending on who you are, run out of one or the other first. How much it costs depends massively on where you are, both the country that you live in, and also in some countries, as in here in the UK, where within that country you live. The sums in America are astronomical. It's, I think, Sasha, correct me if this is wrong, you'd looked into this. I think it's the most expensive IVF in the world. Yeah, I think that's right. It's very expensive in America. There are 14 states now where it's mandatory for health insurance to cover this but the vast majority will have to pay out of pocket, which means that one of the greatest issues here in the States is access. Because, I mean, $20,000 for a single cycle, like that's... Even in the UK, where the costs are much lower than in the States, you know, a lot of people still can't afford this. The first cycle we did at a private clinic, I think it was in the region of... It was between five and £10,000 for the cycle. And then when it doesn't work, there's the realization that you're going to have to do it again. And so at that point, for two reasons, we decided, and I really pushed this, uh, to do it at an NHS hospital, but as privately paying patients. Because of my background as a science reporter, it was really important to me that my treatment was evidence-based. And so we went to an NHS research hospital, but paying privately because the NHS wouldn't pay for my care because at that point, then I was past the age limit for IVF under the NHS. And under this system that is offered, you pay cost. I think it's £3,600 per cycle. And then the drugs are on top of that. And it's about 1500 additional. So you're looking at about five grand for a cycle. And yeah, we did that multiple times. And in all honesty, and it's such a privileged position to be able to say this, and I'm fully aware of that, but I have no regrets about that money. Me neither. I would spend it again. And that's despite the fact that it didn't work. I was very lucky with the finances in that um, I had my first 
four cycles in the Netherlands where this just falls under health insurance, which is just just takes away one massive stressor. Our fifth cycle in Belgium was very affordable as well, actually. We made up for all of that on our sixth cycle. I can't even tell you exactly how much we spent, but it was a lot. It was probably about probably at 15,000 pounds, if not more, if you add some of the tests. We went to a private clinic in London and basically said, yes, we'll have all the bells and whistles. We're going to throw the kitchen sink at this. You know, like, I don't think we can do another cycle after this. So let's just say yes to pretty much everything they recommend. One that both Sasha and I were offered is something called the endometrial receptivity array. And it's a test that proposes to figure out when your uterus is basically ready to receive the embryo. And they sell this for, I think, on average, about £1,000. Both Sasha and I were offered it by a clinic that subsequently admitted that there was not enough evidence to demonstrate that it had any benefit um, and that, in fact, it might harm your chances. Within the NHS in Britain, they don't tend to promote these things unless there is actually solid evidence that it'll work in the vast majority of patients, and, and none of them have that kind of evidence. These things are out there. They're not well tested. They're not well assessed. They don't need to be tested in order to be sold in a lot of cases. And therefore, clinics are sort of, private clinics in particular, are very keen to sell them. Some people go into IVF, I think, saying we will do this no matter what it takes, no matter how long it takes, we will do dozens of cycles, we will travel the world, we will have our baby. I think Tim and I, somewhere relatively early on, actually I remember exactly, it was after the second miscarriage that we're like, no, this is finite. Like, this is finite. We, we, we very much would like to have a child, but not at all cost. And yes, we set deadlines and then broke deadlines. And, but I think it was really important for both of us to have a feeling that this limbo, which is essentially what it is, was not going to be a permanent state. I mean, at the best of times, it held us together. But at the worst of times, it was just, it was filling our best years. I just think five years of underlying fear, hope, tension. It's 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 not what you want to be doing in your in your in, in these years, in any years, frankly. And it's knackering. And it becomes exhausting, especially after so many years, to keep telling family, yes, I'm still doing this. Because there's also the sort of, well, why are you still doing it? Is this really what you want to be doing? And you don't want to have to justify that to anybody. One of the things I found hardest was starting to prepare people around us, our loved ones, for the idea that we might quit at some point. That's not something I normally do in life. I don't, I don't quit things. Um, but the realisation that this does not work for everyone and that it comes at a cost and a toll and that for some people, you know, 
it just makes more sense to stop. That doesn't really fit in the narrative. Last year, we went in for yet another appointment with yet another doctor at yet another clinic and had one particularly painful appointment in which a fairly young and a bit blunt, very straight-talking male doctor started running through you know, donor options. And I think it was during that appointment that I said, I, I just want to be clear, should we be trying one more cycle on our own? And there was a pause in his face. And he just said it very straightforwardly. He just said something along the lines of, it's time to give up on having a child with your own cells. And everything after that in that appointment is a bit of a blur and just an overwhelming sense of, I need to get out of here. I didn't want to be in that room anymore. I did not want to be in that building anymore. On October 18th of last year, so 2022, um, we had just moved over to America and yeah, the date was marked as do your pregnancy test. Got to be honest, I had very low expectations, but did it anyway in that sort of routine way that you do. It was probably 5am or something because I always woke up very, very early on days when I knew I needed to do a pregnancy test. Did it. Tim always had instructions whether or not to join. And I think that morning I said, no, don't bother coming out of bed, I think. Um and then actually halfway through, I got, I was like, maybe, maybe come, um, maybe come. Have. Anyway, the second striped, which I had seen twice before, but frankly, not as clearly. This was a very clear second stripe. Um, and I just, I couldn't believe it. Both of us were just, were just silent. We weren't celebrating. We weren't whooping. We weren't anything. We were just at absolutely stunned. I mean, it's really hard to find the right words now. I think throughout this pregnancy, it's been a process of battling the disbelief. And I know that sounds kind of ungrateful, but of course we were utterly delighted and we were very excited about telling our nearest and dearest, but we were also scared, like, right from the start. Every visit to the doctors where they you know they, they measure the fetal heartbeat it was like a moment of relief like oh gosh she's alive um and I know that sounds kind of weird maybe but we needed that confirmation every time and we were happily surprised every time that she was sort of still alive I knew that Sasha was pregnant almost immediately um not in some weird psychic way, in in the sense that she told me very quickly and um, much sooner, I think, than you would normally tell a friend. Telling Kat was very hard, and I don't mean that in a in a poor me way. I, I I know that it was harder for her to hear than for me to tell, and that's because I've mostly been on the receiving end of people telling me their good news. 
we'd actually spoken about it beforehand in the knowledge that there was a chance, I don't know why, but that there was a chance that this one might actually work and what that would be like. So I sent her an email that might sound impersonal, but that's very purposeful. I hoped, you know, Kat could open it in her own time. It gave her the time to process it in her own way. And she did take some time. Uh, And of course she did take some time. It wasn't envy or jealousy or anger or resentment or anything like that. Obviously, incredibly, actually, you know, grateful that one of us had actually managed to get pregnant. We'd always hoped in a really silly girl friendship kind of way that we'd get pregnant at the same time. Um, I think that's kind of unavoidable. And then after that, I did have to take a beat, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't, I, I was... I was worried that I might resent her and relieved to see that that never even factored in. It was a moment of actually loneliness because that loneliness of the process of IVF, which we'd managed to break through a little bit by having this twin track of doing it at the same time and having lots of shared experiences suddenly crashed in on me and suddenly it was it felt like it was just me my main feeling was i'm abandoning you on our island she's just got on a train and i want to be on that train <laughs> i want to be on that train with her but i also just want to be on that train We'd been on this pretty lonely island together for many years. um, And it was just so nice to have company there. We definitely took a little pause in terms of interaction, how, you know, there have been periods over the last years where we would have multiple conversations a week, lots of daily WhatsApping, um, etc., and we definitely both, I think, took a, without calling it that, but took a, took, a, took a bit of a step back. And then I think we got to a stage where we both missed, missed each other. But yeah, the relationship changes. Of course it's different. And I, I'm not naive in thinking that I'm, I'm also a painful reminder to her. She's been holding her cards quite close to her chest in terms of the pregnancy and I know that that's trying to protect me I actually wish she didn't the last thing that you want in this whole process is pity it's not an affirming emotion it's not an affirming sentiment it doesn't help um and that's not to say that she was pitying me but she was I, I think she has been handling me with white gloves. And in a sense, I'd rather I weren't handled with white gloves. <laughs> um, so it's it's changed that. I mean, you know, the whole last five years were defined by these really parallel tracks, and those tracks are no longer parallel. They may become parallel again at some point in the future, but they're not now. And so I think by definition, it's going to, yeah, it's going to change. It's going to change some things.
what does it mean to stop? I don't think I have an answer to that, actually. And that's probably because I'm not ready yet. I think giving up on that is probably one of the hardest things. And I think it's probably also one of the most private things. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Weekend Intelligence. The reporters were Sasha Nauter and Catherine Braik. The episode was produced by Gemma Newby and the executive producer was Claire Reed. We'll be here every Saturday with a story just like this one. Stories that take the best of The Economist's independent journalism and make it personal, make you think and expand your horizons. To listen to every episode of The Weekend Intelligence, you'll need a subscription to The Economist. If you don't have one already, there's no excuse for missing out. To sign up for a free trial of our new podcast subscription, just click the link in the show notes or search online for Economist Podcasts.